0: amen this morning we're in second corinthians chapter 4 verses 1 through 6 and in honor of god's word would you stand with me as i read this passage of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Amen, this is God's word. You can be seated. So rather than than giving a special message for Thanksgiving, I thought that I'd stick with this series in 2 Corinthians as this passage has a lot for us to give thanks for, reasons to give thanks. The first verse again, therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. Paul speaking, of course, of himself and his ministry team, it seems like I only know actually of one time in all his missionary journeys that he traveled somewhere by himself. And uh, it was just between two cities. It was a time of reflection. But other than that, he always had somebody ministering with him, sometimes a whole team of people. And that, those, those people, Paul and those he surrounded himself with, had a burden for the condition of the church in Corinth. They knew Paul had sent that letter of correction, and they were concerned as to how they had received that letter. Were they going off on a tangent and going to be antagonistic towards Paul as they had been in, in the in-between, or were they going to receive that correction? So uh, Paul and his team, they just continually died to themselves to serve the churches. Nevertheless, it's the mercy of God upon all who shepherd the flocks of God to call them to be ministers of the new covenant, a covenant incomparably more glorious than the old covenant. We are called by the mercy of God and none of us is worthy of the call. We do not merit the calling. It's the mercy of God who chooses whom he wills. And as Paul said, none of us is sufficient for these things. There's not a man on earth who's sufficient to be a minister of the new covenant. It's all the grace and power of God. Our sufficiency, Paul writes, is of God. That's our sufficiency. And yet he holds us accountable because He is willing to be our sufficiency if we will just look to him, if we will trust him and allow him to lead us. But don't think that just because this is about Paul and his ministry team that it doesn't apply to all of us. One of the wonders of the new covenant is that all who are in Christ are referred to as ministers. That's what what God desired of the people of Israel. He said he called them to be a nation of priests. But empowerment came with the new covenant. The Holy Spirit enables us to do as God has directed us. All who are in Christ have a calling to minister in the power of the Holy Spirit. We minister to the Lord in prayer and music. If you were singing just now from your heart to Jesus, you were ministering to the Lord. That's how the Bible puts it. As we praise and worship him, we're ministering to him. We minister to others in acts of service and love and building one another up. Every gift of the Spirit presents a way to minister to the body, the church, building it up until we all attain attain unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God. Though Paul's speaking about himself and his ministry team, or maybe he's including the apostles of the Lord, the ministry each of us has is because of the Lord's mercy. Because each of us has that great privilege of a calling from God, a ministry, we do not lose heart. Despite the difficulties that we face, ties in with Kip's call to worship, we don't always get what we expect. And no matter how we give of ourselves, there's going to be troubles because we live in a fallen world. Paul and his associates didn't lose heart over Corinth. Yes, they were concerned and they were burdened, but they didn't lose heart. We've already seen that. Paul says, I am sure of you. I'm sure you're going to receive this. So we should not lose heart over problems that come up with in our church as well. Thank God we're not facing any of those right now, but they're bound to come because the church is a body of human beings. And when you have human beings, you got problems, amen? (laughs) Whether it's your family or your church or your club, where there's people, there's problems. But because of Christ, we do not lose heart. God's mercy has called us, and that means that he is going to empower us with his Holy Spirit to see that we endure and produce fruit. Success is not seeing what we would like to see happen. Success is obedience to the word and the spirit moment by moment. Therefore, do not lose heart. God's mercy has called you, and his mercy will see you through. Verse two, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways, we refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. Paul returns to the defense of himself and his coworkers. Uh, if you haven't been here for this series, there was some problems with the church between the first letter and the second letter. There was some attacks made on Paul on the way he ministered, uh, uh, on his style, um, the fact that he didn't accept support from the church. There was uh, different people came in, uh, teachers, false teachers, and put Paul down. Uh, and so Paul's having, uh, having to defend his ministry. And part of it, he begins here, that he, he doesn't practice those things that some of the false teachers do. And he alluded this, this before when he said that his team was not like some who were peddlers of god's word implying that they preached with the motivation of financial gain paul worked with his hands while he was in corinth to support himself through his his tent making ministry he worked with leather and he didn't do this in all places just in a couple in corinth was one of them And he did it because God directed him to, of course. Why? Because the Corinthians had this critical attitude and they would have said, oh, he's just doing it for money. Then when he doesn't do it for money, he said, why doesn't he take money like the other guys do? It was a can't win situation, but Paul was taking the higher ground. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, he defends his right to be supported, and yet he tells them he set it aside for their sakes so that he wouldn't stumble them. His team renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. Now, Paul doesn't explain what those ways include, but I would guess those ways were ways in which people can manipulate others to benefit themselves. If a preacher tells you to give so that he you can be blessed in your finances, he's a false teacher. God does promise to repay our sacrifices. He does promise that we will reap what we sow, but that doesn't mean you can give financially to get wealthy. The prosperity gospel is a way to manipulate manipulate the greed in the heart of man our old nature to justify the love of money i've witnessed an entire congregation i went to i was between churches 20 plus years ago and i was trying to find where god wanted me and so i went to every church in the verde valley just saying lord and we even went to japan saying lord where do you want us what do you want us to do And one church we attended at this particular uh, in in the Verde Valley, I won't name which one it was, Um, they had a guest speaker. And the guest speaker had a really nice suit. And he got up there and he was telling him he's going to deliver you from the the spirit of poverty. You just need to give. And then through his message, he manipulated the congregation to start coming up and giving him money. He left with the, I was scared to death that God was going to have me stand up and say something because I had just read a a passage in Peter about false prophets and greedy, greedy ministers, and I just knew God was going to say, get up and say something, so I was literally sweating. At the end of the service, I was thanking God at the end, he didn't have me get up and say anything. At the end of the service, his pockets were stuffed with cash and checks. And I was just praying, please say that he's going to give it to the church for the expansion that they wanted to do. No, he walked away with it. I was sick to my stomach. And it's not unusual. I have a distant relative who does something like this, it's horrible. The preacher should never use what he knows to be desires within man's heart to manipulate and distort the word of God. When we misapply the word of God, we distort who Christ is because he is the word made flesh. And when we we misrepresent him to the world, we squelch the Holy Spirit and we give people a reason to reject Christ. That is a frightening thought. The Greek word here used for tamper is is only used here in the New Testament. But when we look at other Greek documents from the time, it was used as an expression of diluting wine with water, watering down the wine. In other words, don't water down the word of God to make it acceptable to those with a certain mindset. It could also imply contaminating it with ideas that are foreign to scripture. Kent Hughes gives a list of ways in which God's word is tampered with today. Men can intentionally distort God's word, and I'm quoting now for gain, but it's far more common for evangelical preacher to edit God's word by one, removing the text from its context and using it to say whatever the preacher likes or two, by moralizing the text so that it's reduced to an ethical maxim that fits any religion, or three, by using the text to promote hobby horses, and four, by dogmatic instance that the text says things it does not truly say, this homiletical hocus-pocus has subtle roots such as the desire to be clever or popular or synthetically relevant or intellectually respectable or to make the gospel acceptable. But most often, God's word gets watered down by the preacher's laziness. He simply will not do the hard work to engage in the text to preach it in context. I thought, wow, that's powerful. He said it better than I could say it. There's nothing more important than correctly conveying the word of God. We're born again by the word of God. It's the sharp two-edged sword that divides between the soul and spirit. Truth is the belt of the armor of God that holds all the rest of it together. It brings conviction that leads to repentance, and therefore it is a way of life. It's our daily manna. We dare not substitute it for anything else. The explanations of man may help us understand the word, but there are no substitute for the word of God. God's chief means of communicating with us is through words. Have you ever thought about that? He is the creator of language. He chose to communicate to us through words. We're told in scripture that if we want to be spiritually successful in life, we must meditate on the word and give ourselves completely to the word. We're told to memorize it, which is hiding it in our heart. Jesus said, "Man doesn't live by bread alone but by every wor- word that c- comes from the mouth of God. The software I use for the my Bible some of you a lot of preachers and and students of the word use a, a software called Lagos, and Lagos keeps a track of how many because that uh, whenever we do something in our f- software it goes." It's recorded in, at, the, at the center so that they can keep track of which ones you underline and what comments you make so you can restore it if you need to. So they keep track of how many things are underlined by how many people. And the first part of this passage is underlined by 2,600 people, but no one underlined the last half that speaks of the integrity of the minister, which is essential. And I thought, wait a minute. Most of the people using this are ministers. Why didn't they underline that part? Yikes. When when I was studying for the ministry, someone shared with me that you cannot call people to a higher place than you have been. In other words, it, it is the job of the minister to grow spiritually so that he can call people to the place he is going, that he's leading them. Now, you, you can, I can invite you to go places I haven't been, but it's not very compelling. He openly proclaimed the truth, as the Apostle Paul, which contrasted with those ways that he was renouncing in others. He was saying, look at my life. I'm going there. Follow me. In fact, he says that. Be imitators of me. So before God as his witness, he asked them what their own conscience declared about him. I hope we could write the entire church of this city and ask the same, what do you think of Wayside Chapel? What does your conscience declare about Wayside Chapel? Because every church has a reputation in its city. He was originally with them for a year and a half and he was certain with God as his witness that what he had spoken and the way he acted was always truthful and always sincere. Even when he was opposed, he acted no differently. By the mercy of God, may all of us be able to say the same about whatever ministry the Lord has given us. Integrity is a powerful witness of a transformed life. Verse 3, and even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. Paul returns to the veil analogy that he was using in Previous chapter. In chapter 3.14, he tells us the veil is the hardening of the mind, which is a hindrance to receiving the gospel. And here in verse chapter 4, verse 3, Paul says the same hardening applies to all who are perishing. When people cannot see the obvious, it is a spiritual issue. You ever wonder why when you're talking to somebody and you just you You get into spiritual things and you tell them something that's just so black and white and they're like, I don't see that. It's spiritual. It's a spiritual issue. Their, Their eyes are blinded to it. The God of this world has blinded them. I look at the current divisions in our nation and I'm amazed that so many people can't see what's staring us in the face. It isn't just political. It is spiritual what causes people to choose that which is obviously to their detriment and cling to decisions that have that have proven to be harmful it's a spiritual war hardened hearts don't want to see the truth they don't want the veil to be lifted verse 4 in their case the god of this world had blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of christ who is the image of God. If we looked at this verse alone, we would think God is unfair to blind the eyes of some and not others. But in context, we see that they have already hardened their hearts. If we want an excuse not to see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, the God of this world will gladly give us one if we're resisting the grace that that God is offering to us day after day and refusing to see what he's showing us when he lifts the veil a bit to let a little light in, then we'll cling to the lies and the deceiver so that we continue to live as our own Lord. But if we think we're our own God, we don't realize we're enslaved to the God of this world. Self-deception is aided and abetted by Satan's deception. In the case of Saul of Tarsus, he was blinded by the indoctrination he grew up under. He thought he knew the truth until the day the light of the truth blinded his physical eyes, revealing to him the condition of his spiritual eyes. Did you ever think of it that way? When, when he got knocked down on the road to Damascus and he couldn't see, God was showing him. You are blind, brother. You're, you're killing my people. You think you're serving me, but you're completely blind. So God illustrated it physically in Paul's body. That was the means of lifting the veil for him. And then he devoted his life to opening the eyes of others so that they might turn from darkness to light. The light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. What an expression. That's so rich, so beautiful. Light dispels darkness. In scripture, light is truth and revelation of what's real. Gospel literally means good news and glory is the outshining of inner perfection. In our day, we might express it like this, the truth of the good news of the wondrous expression of Christ. He is the likeness of God. Paul may have been combining two Jewish ideas. The first being Adam was made in the image of God. And Jewish wisdom literature personifies wisdom and celebrates the glory of wisdom A quote from part of their wisdom literature is, for she, that is wisdom, is a reflection of eternal light, a spotless mirror of the working of God and an image of his goodness. Wisdom is also referred to as a creator, which Paul ascribes to Christ, thus declaring Jesus to be all man, Adam, and all God, wisdom. Jesus, the God-man, perfectly represents God to us. If you've seen him, you've seen the Father. That's what those who are blinded cannot see. The blinded cannot see the wonder of Jesus' life and his words and his deeds. They cannot see that he died to give them life. They don't even realize they are dead in their trespasses and sins. And when someone shares the word of life with them, they only smell the fragrance of death. They do not think about what they would gain, but they ponder what they would lose. They do not see the Lord of love, but instead a tyrant who wants to take away all their pleasure. That's what it means to be blinded by the God of this world. And though they might see that they're being self-destructive, they won't turn to the light and see the beauty of the Savior who's holding his hands out to them, longing to set them free. May our eyes always be open to the illumination of the good news of the words and actions of our Savior, who faithfully reveals to us the heart of God. Verse five, for what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. Paul defends his ministry his defense of his ministry, as that is that his message isn't about him. His proclamation is always Jesus the Messiah is the Lord. And he and his team are just servants for Jesus' sake. Our crucified king gave himself for us and therefore he is worthy of all our allegiance. Serving others was his means of lifting the veil For others by shining the light of the knowledge of Christ. When a minister's message points to himself, you should immediately see a red flag. Of course, ministers share testimonies from how God's worked in their lives, but those testimonies should always leave us the impression of how amazing our Savior Jesus Christ is. If we leave thinking what an amazing man or woman, the person has not proclaimed Christ. If the message is how we need to help that minister rather than him or her offering to serve, there should be caution. This is the main contrast between peddlers of the word of God and those who are truly called. The peddler of the word is out to gain something for him or herself. The servant of God just points to Jesus and offers himself as a servant. Every person who's born again is to be a servant for Jesus' sake. We're all to serve one another in love and help build one another up. Paul's gospel was that Jesus Christ is Lord. That points to all the predictions of the one who was to come, the son who would be given, who would crush the head of the serpent, the one we look to to live. Lord means exalted over all, It is to him that every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It's his lordship that we proclaim, not ourselves. And that is the means of the veil being lifted, seeing Jesus for who he is and his glorious position as Lord over all. And verse six, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. You know, the very first thing that God spoke in scripture, Genesis 1-3, let there be light. The physical was created that we might understand the spiritual especially the invisible attributes of God. Those attributes manifested are a revelation of his glory. The same creative power that spoke light into existence speaks light into our dark souls. Paul experienced this in a dramatic way on the road to Damascus. He's just telling, uh, he's applying what he experienced and he sees in others as well. If anyone comes, it's because of the same gracious light shining in their soul. We could say that creation was also God's way of revealing his glory. His heart desires that light dispel the darkness in the heart of man. His light is his truth, the revealing of his perfect nature. And that's what God shines in our hearts to give the knowledge of God in the face of Christ Jesus. We see Jesus loving children, And we understand that God loves humanity, especially the most innocent among us. We see him driving the merchants out of the temple and we know that God wants our hearts not to be distracted by thoughts of merchandising while we're worshiping him. We read of him patiently correcting Pharisees and know that God wants all to come to the knowledge of the truth, even those who are misleading others. We see him on the cross And we realize that God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Light shines in the darkness of our souls and reveals the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Now when Paul wrote this, he usually had scripture in mind. Uh, When he writes, and I think perhaps he was thinking of Isaiah chapter nine, verse two. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light and those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness on them, the light has shone. Isaiah chapter nine, verses one through seven, amazing prophecy about where the Messiah would live, where he would minister, (laughs) the highway that he would live on the regions of Israel he administered to, the names by which he was called, um, the fact that he would be born and yet he is a son given to us. amazing those seven verses incredible. And this is why because of this verse they have seen a great light, the Jews of, Jesus' day referred to the coming Messiah as the great light because of this particular passage. And though his ministry was a light to the darkness of Galilee in that day, his words have become light to the world and salvation to the nations. How blessed we are to have the veil lifted and our hearts softened and our spiritual eyes open to the glory of God. And everyone who's experienced that says, Amen. (laughs) And when we see it, we see it all around us every day. That's what I was talking about. This, you just start to see, Whoa, how did that come together? And that came together. And I just happened to meet that person at that time. And we just see it everywhere around us. All of life becomes a miracle. What we'd overlooked before as ordinary suddenly is filled with the wonder of the love of God, orchestrating our days and directing our encounters, and how blessed we are if we can be the instrument that God works through to shine that light into the dark hearts and souls of the lost. And perhaps that's what Paul's reminding them of. He was that instrument that brought the light to this church in Corinth. How could they now question his role in God's work. I imagine Paul sitting down, he's in prison and he's he's writing this out to a congregation and he's expressing the very appeal of God himself. Knowing that the Lord he saw with his own eyes for a moment before he was blinded on the road to Damascus is working through him. Immortal souls are listening to the words as the Holy Spirit works upon their hearts. And angels are doing their part, waiting for our decision. Heaven and hell are waiting for the response. No wonder then that he did not lose heart considering the awesome ministry he was engaged in. And while our ministry may not be the height of that greatness, it's just as wonderful a privilege to serve Almighty God. Therefore, let us be thankful that the light of the knowledge of the glory of God has shone in our hearts in the face of Christ Jesus. For the ministry that has been given to each of us by grace and for the enabling power of the Holy Spirit to carry out that ministry. Therefore, we do not lose heart. I want to close with a poem by John Piper. He writes, Let there be light. Thus spoke the Lord. Thus we were made and thus restored. Christ's conquering word created all, our shining hope, his sovereign call. Amen. Amen. Jill, would you lead us in a closing song?